Well, church, we are returning to the book of Ecclesiastes today. Our ushers are bringing note sheets and Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. They'll get one to you. Uh, but please open that Bible up to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We had a wonderful month in the book of Hebrews, hitting on some of the major topics, declaring the greatness of Christ over other things, particularly over the Old Covenant law. And so we're very grateful that he has come and given himself as an offering for his church. Uh, so we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we've got much to do. I want to be responsible with our time, as uh, we've got communion as well today, and many things for the Lord to show us in Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, we're going to begin straight away. I'll read for us verses 1 through 9 as we open up the service. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man, to his hurt. Now, as we begin to think through these verses that God has given to us this morning, verse 1 acts as a kind of transitional marker for us, setting up further discussions regarding wisdom itself. And as we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, wisdom has been a predominant theme. We've been learning about how to understand the world that we live in. What is the purpose for God putting us in this world and how we can be an honor to Him with the ways that we live our lives. Some of the big questions big picture questions that are often on the minds of and hearts of men have been on the minds and heart of Solomon as he writes this book. Why are we here? How can we find fulfillment? What is the true purpose of man's existence? The seventh chapter ended with the following observation. Ecclesiastes 7.29 said, See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Though God has chosen to make man in his image, he has built us upright. Man has defiled that image with his sin. And it negatively impacts the way that we live our lives. Every aspect of who we are is affected by sin, including our ability and capacity for wisdom. When Solomon says that man has sought out many schemes, he's referring to the fact that man sees a God above who rules in wisdom, who is the sovereign king over his creation, but because of his pride, because he is unhappy with that reality that he is not on the throne, man has chosen these schemes. He has chosen to embrace lies instead of truth. He has preferred to believe that he can exist apart from God and rule his own life. <clears throat> that willing ignorance cripples our ability to understand the world that's around us. The wisdom itself is not some kind of magic bullet that's going to solve all of life's mysteries. Solomon's already proved that to us. Nevertheless, the first verse in chapter 8 
clearly proclaims the good that can come when we set our minds to seek wisdom, when we turn away from the schemes that are natural to the heart of man, and we ask God to reveal to us the truth that he desires for us to know. We hear in the second part of verse 1 here that wisdom makes a man's face shine. Now you've probably heard the popular saying that ignorance is bliss. Some people believe that if you just live like a dull person, don't worry too much about the big picture items and just live life for the moment, then you'll be better off for it. But that's not true. Ignorance is not bliss, or at least not in the long run. Solomon has already addressed the fact that the more we know, the harder it can be to deal with life's mysteries. But Solomon's also pointed out that God has put these questions into our hearts. He has put eternity into our hearts. So there will ever be this desire for more understanding and more wisdom so long as we live. We cannot hide from it. It will continue to, to come up in our hearts and in our minds. So ignorance might numb us for a moment, but it doesn't solve the problems of existence. Trying to ignore the truth cannot give us the true joy that comes when we embrace the realities of God and seek His will. When we do just that, when we put Christ first and we put the Lord before ourselves, then our face can shine with the joy that comes from being settled in something that is eternal and bigger than ourselves. It also says here that wisdom dispels the hardness of a man's face. And that's an interesting phrase. The man who rejects the true wisdom of God strains against his mighty power. He takes up a posture of resistance. Remember when the, uh, the first deacon, one of the first seven deacons, Stephen, was preaching in the book of Acts and he was confronting his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, who were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And he was honest and upfront with him. He didn't pull punches. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. And that, that term, you stiff-necked people, that, that speaks of someone who is diligently set in their ways. They're not willing to look to the left or to the right, even if their way is going to lead them to destruction. <clears throat> Stephen was indicating to his brothers and sisters of, of Judaism that they needed to become humble and soft before the Lord God. They needed to let God lead them where they needed to go, even if it was different than what they expected. And when we bow ourselves to the wisdom and the might of God's knowledge, when we relax and let him be the true sovereign king that he is, when we stop straining against him and desiring to battle and wrestle him at every turn, when we just let him be God, then he brings a relaxation to us. And it can be expressed even in our faces. We can, we can have a, a more, more comfortable demeanor. We can be happy with, with God if we would simply trust him to be the sovereign God who's going to lead us where we need to go. And so wisdom is our aim. And in chapter 8 here... <clears throat> There are three movements of this wisdom, three expansions upon wisdom in, in particular areas of our lives. Verses 2 through 9, wisdom is concerning kings and rulers, which we are going to handle today. We're talking about the powers that be over us. Verses 10 through 14 speaks of wisdom regarding pragmatism. Some folks think that you just need to be practical about everything. Do what helps you out right here and right now. But there are pitfalls in that as well. So we're going to talk about pragmatism and why it isn't the answer to life's problems. And then verses 16 through 17 addresses the idea of the limits of man's wisdom, that there is only so much that we can know. How do we come to terms with the small capacity of understanding that we have? And how can we be good stewards of what we have been given to know? Then sandwiched between those three chunks that regard wisdom 
is an important reminder in verse 15 of how this life, though it seems to be vanity at times, though it's a life of constant transition and change, that we are still called by God to enjoy this life, to experience it and to be thankful for it and to love the things that God has given to us in the midst of this life. It is often affected by trial and tribulation. So as we think of this first section, wisdom concerning rulers and kings, wisdom concerning earthly governments, I want us to think about our own. There is no denying that as 2020 begins, the American government is at at an intense crossroads right now. There have been efforts in the House of Representatives to call for the impeachment of President Trump. We know that though that uh, gained favor in the House, it's very unlikely that it's going to get traction in the Senate. But it still is an indicator that there's a lot of division and unrest in this nation that we call our home. We may be, at this very moment, on the brink of significant military conflict in Iraq and Iran. Pro-Iranian militia uh, militia groups that were angered by some bombings that America did over the weekend, uh, that ended up in the, the destruction of one of Iran's top military officials, have caused riots, and for Tuesday and Wednesday, the embassy in Iraq was under siege by people who were angry at what had been done. Um, Not only is there tension in the Middle East that concerns our nation, but there's tension here in our own shores as well. Christians in our nation are feeling increasingly marginalized by the culture as sinful behavior is being given increasing legal shelter, and some are even lobbying to strip away tax exemptions from churches, which would put them under the direct taxation of law, which keeps them um, from being separate from the state. So there's a lot going on in our nation that we need to be in prayer about, a lot of unrest. And all of the wisdom that Solomon shares in this section that we're opening up here in chapter 8 regarding kings and our attitude towards governments, he has in mind this reality that's mentioned in chapter 8, verse 9, when he says, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. What does that mean? That means that man, specifically man in the fall, man who sins, does not often make a proficient or reliable leader. And so all of these governments in our world are run by sinful human beings. Man has often flexed whatever power he gains in such a way that he does damage and harm to other men and women. Given man's broken track record of questionable leadership, some people may feel justified in writing off elected officials, our kings, or representatives, or presidents. But taking Solomon's instruction on the matter in its entirety, we'd see that regardless of man's leadership failures, we cannot simply decide to ignore these governments and just rule ourselves. That cannot be an option for someone who is trying to be faithful to the Lord God. Verse 2 says this, It is wise to keep the command of the king. It is wise to keep the command of the king. And this is based on the presence of an oath. And we're not really sure exactly what this oath means. We need to try to clarify it the best that we can. But in all the verses of Ecclesiastes, this is one of the most linguistically difficult passages to translate in the Hebrew into English. This this discussion about oaths can mean a number of things. Is it an oath from God to the king? If you've got an English Standard Version, that's what the words make it kind of seem like it's saying, that God has somehow made an oath to those who rule by his command. 
But if that is the case, then where does God swear this oath to them? What kind of promises has he made? Do we know anything about this oath? But that's not the only way it can be translated. Is it a godly oath from the subjects who are ruled over to the king that God has put in place to rule over them? Is that what's talked about here when it mentions oaths? It was very common for subjects of a king to swear some kind of a social oath as an allegiance, as a citizen under the leader that was in charge of the region that they lived in. So maybe that's what's being mentioned here. So the wording in the original Hebrew is, is so ambiguous that it's hard to pin it down. The words in the Hebrew literally are, for the sake of oath, God. So how we put those in order and how we connect them would largely change the meaning of it. And it makes it very important to consider the context and to think of other passages that speak to the authority of earthly rulers and God's involvement in the politics of man. Considering the broader context of Scripture, I think the most likely force of this statement might be something like this. Here's a paraphrase. Because of the covenant oath that you made to follow after God, it is wise to follow the king that is currently ruling over you. Because of the covenant oath that you made, in other words, this is Solomon reminding the people that they are under oath to follow God. And since God has put kings in place, they obey that oath by obeying the rules of the kings that he has put them underneath. The Israelites were a people of promise, weren't they? They had entered into official recorded covenants with Yahweh, their God. Remember that for the male Israelite, every day they would see a physical representation of that covenant. Circumcision was a marker that showed them and reminded them daily that they were set aside as a promise to God. Scripture makes it clear in no uncertain terms that God is sovereignly in control of all things, even over kings that do not express faith in him. So God puts kings and rulers in control, and therefore it is obedient to God when we obey these earthly governments that are over us. Let's see some other scriptures from the New Testament that help us to understand that truth and that resonate with that idea. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Titus, fellow elder, who is trying to coordinate and organize a church. And he is reminding him that those who are faithful Christians should be good citizens as well. 1 Peter 2, 13-17 says almost the same thing. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. I love when Peter does this. He does this from time to time where he just tells you what the will of God is. I want to know the will of God, and I hope that you want to know the will of God. So I'm grateful when the scripture basically says, this is plainly the will of God. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And this is how you do that. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And so the force behind this instruction is this, that God is sovereign, and since he has allowed men to rule over us, 
Whether they do their job poorly or whether they rule with a degree of wisdom and fairness, we as God's subjects are to do our very best to obey the commands of that human ruler. Now that makes, makes us think, right? If you're engaged in the sermon, you shouldn't just say, okay. You should think through what is being said. And your heart probably asks the question, why would God, in his sovereignty, ever allow a self-serving, dishonest king to rule over his people? If he cares about us, why doesn't he make sure that good people sit on thrones? The reason is not the reason we want to hear. The reason he allows these wicked rulers is because that is exactly what we, as sinful human beings, have asked for. That is what we have demanded of God. In our rebellion, we have made ourselves to be sovereign apart from God, independent from his rule. And since that is direct rebellion to the one and only sovereign king, we deserve the punishment of having to endure the bad leadership that flows from our own sinful rebellion. We deserve to see firsthand what happens when man in his sinful state rules over anything. And don't forget that when God created man, he didn't create man as utter servants, but he put them in the garden and he gave them dominion over the creation. Man had no reason to rebel against God. They had been given great authority over many things. God would, had given them a place of prominence, a place of responsibility. And yet that was not enough for the proud heart of man who desired to be more than what he was. He desired to have the throne that only God can sit upon. And so if man wants that throne, he tries to push God off of it. In his pride, he wants more than he should have. So God, in his infinite wisdom, has decided to let us get a feel, a taste, for what happens when man rules. It is necessary for us to see the poor traits of human leadership so that we will understand that no human leader can be enough, that God himself must sit at the throne of our hearts. We will long for justice. We're going to long for fairness. We're going to desire a compassionate king who works for the best interest and for the greater good. That's going to be the desire of our heart. That kind of a king is what is best for us. And we will see the blessing of that king eventually if we trust the Lord. But we don't deserve it. We only see that good leadership of Christ because of his amazing grace poured out upon sinners like us. We are sinful rebels. And we get what is due to one who rebels against a perfect and holy king. When we consider the history of Israel, God's chosen people, we have examples of how they tried to cry out for an earthly king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, the people of Israel had been ruled by God for a great period of time, but they began to become restless because every nation around them was ruled by a man on a throne. And Israel had a throne, but it was in heaven. They couldn't see it. They couldn't walk up to it. They couldn't approach it the way that they desired to. And so through the prophet Samuel, they requested that God give them an earthly king, a man to sit upon their throne. And God warned them and said, that is not what you want. 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18. Listen to what the prophet tells the people which God revealed to him. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, he'll put them to war. He'll conscript them. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his grounds and some to reap his harvest. 
and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and, and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. See, Israel wanted what they shouldn't want. And that decision in Samuel is a microcosm of the greater decision to sin against a sovereign God. That each one of us wants to be in some ways independent from the Lord God and has rebelled against his rules. Every time one of his scriptures is plainly before us and we ignore it and do what we want to do instead, that is a rebellion against God. So we've cried out for the very imperfect leadership that we have today. We have refused to trust God as the only king, and so these earthly kings, these insufficient leaders, are a reflection on the re a result of our direct rebellion to God. And we remember back in Ecclesiastes 3, which we studied some months ago, that God is sovereign over all things, that everything happens in a time and in a season that he ordains and chooses with his hands. So these, these despotic rulers, these, these insufficient men who rule, God knows they're being put into rule. And he is teaching us a lesson through their insufficient rule. So he gives us here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 more instructions about these things. The instruction that Solomon gives us here in the first part of chapter 8 conflicts in many ways with our American mentality. We have what I sometimes think of as like a cowboy vigilante mindset here in America. We all think that we deserve freedom. We all think that we deserve the pursuit of happiness. And so if anybody stands in the way of us and our happiness, we feel that we have the right to rebel against them. We become entitled. We become obstinate to those leaders. Who would we count as a hero? We would often count as a hero one who fights for his rights, the one who doesn't put up with injustice, the one who resists an imperfect ruler and who insists that he deserves better. That's the hero in our eyes. That's our instinct. But if that is who we say is a hero, we may very well be exalting someone who is in direct opposition to the will of God for his people. Listen to this carefully. He who overthrows an evil regime is not as heroic as he who faithfully and humbly bows before the almighty will of God even if they must bear up under the burden of poor earthly leadership. The faithful man to the Lord is more heroic than some who pushes his will with guns and might. That is not to say that we are to be passive in the face of evil, so please do not misunderstand the sermon this morning. God is not telling us that we should just let evil run ramrod over us, but there is a difference between battling evil and trying to topple the government that the Scripture tells us was put into place by the Lord God. Think about that. Just a, a few days ago, in a church in Texas, West Freeway Church of Christ, a man with evil intentions walked into the service. This is a man that was not a stranger to the church. He had received handouts from them in the past. But he had asked for money, and they had said they, they weren't willing to give it to him. And so feeling like he deserved more, he came into the congregation with a shotgun under his long coat. And after the church had started, he stood up and pulled out his shotgun and shot dead two of the deacons of that church. It lasted six seconds. 
because within moments, individuals who were members of that church who had legal concealed carry permits pulled their own weapons and shot him down before he could do more damage than he did. What could have been a massacre of monumental proportions is still a tragedy because two faithful men have gone to the Lord. Their families are left behind without a father, without a grandfather. But it was right for those men to pull their arms out and to defend the brothers and sisters that they consider their family. It was right for them to shoot down this man who was breaking the law and had nothing but evil and wickedness in his heart as he committed that act of of law-breaking. So I'm not saying here today that we should stand back and just let people run over us. But the ways we think about government need to be dictated by the scriptures of God. And the scriptures of God tell us that even governments that are a burden to us are sometimes a burden to us for a reason. Verse 3 expands on Solomon's instructions. He says, do not be quick to depart from the king. That means don't be so swift to disregard the king's rules, to turn away from his, his leadership and his legislation. Our faithfulness to the earthly king is faithfulness to the king of kings. So do not take your stand in an evil cause. No rejection of the king should stem from a selfish desire or, rebe- or rebellious motive. All of us, probably at some time or another, have been upset at our earthly governors, whether or not they are lined up with your political party. Is it always because they are doing something against the will of God, or is it often because they aggravate us? Is it often because they do things that make us uncomfortable? Is that really worth rejecting a ruler just because they don't rule the way that you want to or along the party lines that you desire? Or are we truly upset at governments because of righteous reasons? Because they are not upholding the truths that God professes as the true king. We must ask ourselves, are there times when it might be justified to depart from the king? And I think this scripture holds the key to that answer. It says, do not be quick to depart from him. It doesn't say never depart from him, does it? Do not be quick to depart from him. There are times when an earthly government is so bent towards wickedness that godly men and women may need to stand against that government. But it should be very rare, and we should be slow to respond to our instincts and reactions that say that our government is not worthy of our allegiance. So what are the guidelines in opposing the authority of an earthly king? They aren't given plainly to us. And that is because, for one thing, it is likely very, very rare that a Christian will be in the right to overthrow or aggressively oppose the government that is reigning over him. Think about for a moment the kind of government situation that Jesus is born into. That he, being of Jewish stock, is part of several generations that have been oppressed by emperors, that have been given unfair legislation, that have not been allowed to worship the way that they desire to worship. They have experienced persecution. They've experienced segregation. They've experienced pressure from they're Roman rulers. And yet Jesus does not come in and say, let's get a militia together. Go get your arms. Let's draw our swords. Let's start a war. Let's knock this emperor or this governor off the throne and let's take back what belongs to us. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus saddles up against humble sinners, brings them to his side, and he teaches them of a greater kingdom and a greater rule which will one day completely realize here on earth and in heaven, but is even in this very moment in place in the heavenly places. 
He doesn't tell them to take up arms. He tells them to submit themselves to the throne of God and put him on their own hearts. The effect of the early church is not political in a larger sense. It is political in a personal sense. It is directed at the hearts of individuals that they might submit themselves to the rule of the true king. So it is not outlined in great detail here because it's very, very rare that a Christian would ever have to overthrow a government. But there's a second reason why we don't have much information, and that's because the information that is given to us doesn't match our sensibilities, and so we tend to overlook it. It's not what we expect. It's not what we want to hear. Our spurned hearts want to hear something from Scripture that says, rise up and, and take out the powers that are making you so angry. But that's not what the Scripture tells us. Look, look at the example of Scripture. We're going to look at an example here in Daniel chapter 3. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to summarize this because we don't have a lot of time to read the whole passage here this morning. The book of Daniel is a very interesting case study. When we think about how we are to bear up under a government that doesn't love the Lord and doesn't represent our best interests. Because for years and years, the northern kingdom of Israel had been obstinate to God. Though they were a people of covenant, they had not honored him the way that they should. And after warning and warning and warning, God allows the nation of Samaria to come and to defeat them in battle and to take their sovereignly given lands away from them. This happens about 150 years before the southern kingdom of Judah follows right in the same wake and makes the same mistakes as their northern brothers and sisters. And so right around 605 B.C., the nation of Babylon is permitted by God to come in and to defeat the nation of Judah, taking Israel, Jerusalem, the Holy Land, under their own powers. They were not a godly nation. They were not a, a nation that, that reigned with scriptural wisdom, but God allowed them to do that to Judah as a punishment to them. And as part of that, many of the young, promising students in Jerusalem were taken out of that capital and basically kidnapped, brought into the capital of Babylon, and forced to work for the king there. Three young men that we're going to think about here today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in that exact situation. They were young. They were promising students. They had great minds. And they had been taken out of Jerusalem and placed into the capital of Babylon, into a brand new culture that was very secularized. And they had to learn how to adapt to that new situation that they didn't belong in. What you don't see these three young men doing is trying to take down the government from within. You don't see them rising up in arms. You don't see them trying to escape. You see them carefully and thoughtfully trying to figure out how they can conform to their culture while at the same time maintaining their godly identity as worshipers of Yahweh. And there's some ups and downs in that road. They have to figure out how to deal with the different diet that was prevalent in that society. They took on foreign names that had different meanings that didn't honor the Lord God. They're serving a king that, that isn't like their king back in Jerusalem. And it is in chapter 3 when we find that they finally hit a brick wall where they have tried to do their best to get along with this new culture that they've been thrust into. But in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar has decided to fashion for himself in honor of his exploits a giant statue. And this statue was going to be a symbol of his rule over his empire. And he commands all the people of his empires, both sovereign Babylonians and those he has conquered, that at the sound of a trumpet they are to all bow in worship and admiration to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can't do it. 
they know that to obey that law would be to oppose the greater laws of God in heaven. And so they determine to disobey. It's amazing to think about how exactly they did that. When all the nations heard the trumpets blasting, and it was time to bow and worship, everyone turns their head to the ground and subjugates themselves, except for these three young Jewish men who remain standing. They remain standing, and they allowed themselves to be captured and taken in as prisoners. When they were questioned and given the chance to recant and to bow a second time, they explained that it's something that they cannot do, that their allegiance is to the one true God. And as much as they have tried to be a part of this culture, they cannot break his law in order to keep the law of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 4 of our passage today, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Well, these young men knew that they didn't have much power in their situation, but they knew that another had more power than Nebuchadnezzar, and that is Yahweh. And so they would rather face Yahweh with a clear conscience than face Nebuchadnezzar as obedient citizens. Verse 5 says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and his wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And these young men, because their eyes were fixed on Christ, fixed on God, rather, they knew the proper time. They knew the just way. They don't try to take out the king. They don't try to fight back with swords. They simply allow themselves to be arrested, and they bear testimony again and again to the goodness of their God. You likely know the rest of the story, that because of their faithful disobedience, they were cast into a fiery pit to be annihilated by the heat of fire. But when they were thrown into this furnace, this fiery furnace that killed even the guards that brought them down to it, it was raging so hot, they did not die. Rather, they seemed to be just fine. They dwelt in the midst of the flames, and not just the three of them, but those gazing upon the scene saw a fourth individual in the fire with them. Many believe that to be a theophany, a pre-appearance of Jesus Christ before he had taken on flesh. The Son of God dwelt with those three and helped them through their trial. Now, we must take note here that before they were thrown into the fire, these three young men were given the opportunity to change their mind and to bow to the statue. And they made it very clear that they didn't know how everything was going to turn out. They told Nebuchadnezzar, even if our God chooses not to spare us in this, nevertheless, we will serve our God. They didn't know that they would survive. They didn't know if they were about to be burned to a crisp. They simply went forward in faith. And let me tell you, there have been hundreds, probably thousands of other Christians over the years that were not preserved by the Lord, that went into the flames and suffered the agony, that died and were never to be heard of again in this world. Does that mean that God had abandoned those believers? Absolutely not. But God knew the timing. And in this moment, it was his will to preserve the young men and to bring them out of that fire in one piece so that they could testify to the goodness of God and his superiority over the false gods of Babylon. Let's make some observations about what they did. First, their resistance was public resistance. It was not, let's just bow before everybody so we can avoid persecution, but in our hearts, we won't be bowing. In our hearts, secretly, we'll be bowing to Yahweh, but, you know, superficially, we'll just bow to the statue. 
That wasn't enough for them. They understood that they could not be ashamed of Yahweh their God. And they stood publicly. They stood in the square. They did not flee. They stood their ground. Secondly, their resistance was peaceful. They didn't resist in such a way to spur on a riot or to instill in other people who were uncomfortable about bowing down a newfound confidence to make them all rise up against this regime. No, they peacefully stood and they received their punishment. Third point, their resistance secured a legal penalty which they accepted. I don't think they were glad about it. These young men had their whole lives before them, but they accepted the penalty of their disobedience to the civil powers. And then finally, God showed his right to override the authority of the earthly king by sparing those young men. Friends, there are times and places where we may need to say, this is wicked beyond what I can bear. And in order to be right with the Lord, I must be wrong with this regime. But let us not let the moving pictures of Hollywood determine how we think of heroism. But instead, let us look to the pages of Scripture where we see humble young men determined to stand publicly for what they believed in, determined to take whatever punishment came as a result of that and trusting God for the outcome. There are serious problems with our nation's friends. Most of them are not new problems. We must, first of all, be grateful that things are not as bad as they could be. Though we are prone to complain and argue against the powers who are in charge, we must remember that God has made this nation such a place that we do have freedom of religion, that it is not nearly as wicked as it could be if man's heart was allowed to run the direction it wants to go. Let us be thankful for what God has given. Let us be thankful for what God has preserved. And let us not be so quick to complain that we forget the protection that God has afforded us by putting us in this nation. Secondly, let us be realistic that a perfect government isn't something that we deserve. It's not something that we have earned. So we are in the wrong to shake our fists at God and demand that he give us a better president, a better government, a better legislation. Rather, let us humbly receive this as a, as a, uh, a teaching moment that God is showing us that when man rules out of the wickedness of his heart, this is the kind of stuff that we get. This is the kind of weak leadership that we get. Third, we need to believe fully that there is a greater government in place right now that supersedes whatever shabby government we might build for ourselves as human beings. The Lord God is sovereign and he's on his throne. He does not tremble at any political development because it is not news to him. He is never surprised. He's never having to learn anything about our governments. He knew all of this would happen the way that it is happening. So let us put our faith and trust in him. And fourthly, let us be radically honest with ourselves about the reasons that we might want to run away from the king, turn away from his commands. Are our motives pure, or are we simply grumbling because we're not getting what we want? We're not as comfortable as we could be. We are not justified in turning away this king that God has put on a throne simply because we don't like their policies, or simply because it makes our heart a little harder, or because it costs us some money. That's not a good enough reason for us to take a stand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to give their lives for what mattered, not for their opinions and their comfort. To close, I'd like to share something with you. On December 10th, 2018, China began to raid churches in their region 
that were Christian churches. You see, the way that the communist government in China is set up, it is not technically illegal to be a Christian, as long as you are the kind of Christian that communism there approves of. In other words, you must register your church with the communist state. And by registering with them, you are committing to be a Christian in their definition of what a Christian is. You're not allowed to teach certain scriptures. You're not allowed to radically obey the Lord God. You can only obey Him ceremonially. And so true Christians in China understand that to be a communist Christian, by their definition of the rule, is to, to be no Christian at all. And so there are some approved of, registered churches in the region. But there are many more who are worshiping the Lord God in unregistered churches, in true churches, not trying to incite rebellion or revolution, but refusing to give up their right to worship the one God who has saved their hearts, minds, and souls by Jesus Christ. On December 10th of 2018, China raided one of the largest house church networks that exists. The name of that church is Early Rain Covenant Church. They disbanded their fellowship. They incarcerated over 100 members of that church, including their lead pastor, Wen Yi. Two days after he was arrested, the members of that church who were not arrested posted on the internet a letter that Wen Yi had written in anticipation of his arrest. This was not news to Wen Yi. He knew that this day was coming. He had seen it coming, not from any prophetic special gift, but because he could see the writing on the wall. For years, he had tried to advocate for better rights for his people. He had tried to encourage Christians to be strong in their preaching of the true gospel and their clinging to the real scripture. And this was the day that his ministry was going to take a huge turn. He had told his fellow church members that if he was arrested, that they should wait 48 hours. And if after 48 hours he was not released, that they were to release this letter. And I'm going to read a part of it to you today. We don't have time to go through the whole thing. But these are the words of someone who is doing his best to faithfully respect the words of Ecclesiastes 8 and Titus 3, Romans 13, and 1 Peter, so that he might be in line with what the Scripture teaches about right that views and attitudes towards government. So listen to what pa Pastor Wang Ji um, wrote to his people. According to the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the founding powers of God in China because the king of waste and the king of kings are all in God. To this end, I obey God's arrangement of Chinese history and institutions. As pastor of the Christian church, I started from the Bible and have my own understanding and views on the social, political, and legal fields, what is justice and the governance of goodness. At the same time, I am full of disgust and hatred for the CCP's persecution of the church, the deprivation of human faith, and the freedom of conscience. However, the change of all social and political systems is not the mission of my calling, nor the purpose of the gospel being given to the people of God. Because all the ugliness of reality, the political injustice and the arbitrariness of the law show that the cross of Jesus Christ is the only salvation that every Chinese must have. It also shows that true hope and perfect human society do not exist in any institutional and cultural changes on earth, but simply show how human sins are forgiven by Christ and have the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my faith in the gospel and the teachings of the people 
and the blame for all sin are out of Christ's command in the gospel, out of unmeasurable love of, of the glory king. Everyone's life is so short, and God is so eager to command the church to lead and call anyone who is willing to repent unto repentance. Christ is so urgent and willing to forgive all who turn from sin. This is the purpose of all the work of the church in China. It is to witness Christ to the world, to witness the kingdom of heaven to China, and to witness the eternal life of heaven to the short life of the earth. This is also my pastoral call. And to this end, I accept and respect the CCP's regime as a temporary ruler allowed by God. As the Lord's servant, John Calvin said that the ruler of evil is God's punishment for the wicked people, and the purpose is to urge the people of God to be repentant. And to this end, I am willing to obey their law enforcement behavior physically, as if obeying the Lord's discipline and training. I also believe that the persecution of the church by the Chinese communist regime is an extremely evil crime. As a pastor of the Christian church, I must sternly and openly blame sins. The calling also requires me to violate all human laws which violate the Bible and God in a nonviolent form, in peace and patience. Christ my Savior also asks me to joyfully bear all the costs of transgressing these evil laws. But this does not mean that my personal and church disobedience is a political act in any sense of activism or civil disobedience, because I have no intention of changing any of China's system and laws. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disobedience of faith. And what he means by that, that's an interesting term. Let me pause for a second. The disobedience of faith means that because he has faith in God, he must be disobedient to the government that is over him. He must continue to worship the way he's been called to worship. So as a pastor, the only thing he says I care about is the disobedience of faith, the shock of sinful humanity, and the testimony of the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is part of the gospel mission. The great mission of Christ requires our great resistance to the world. The purpose of resisting is not to change the world, but to witness to another world. There is much more to this letter, and it is worth your reading. So if you go home today and look up this pastor's name, you won't have any problem finding that letter in its entirety. And I'm not saying that this man has everything entirely figured out perfectly, but here is the testimony of an individual who sees that he is in a very difficult situation because he desires to honor his God by obeying the principalities and powers that God has allowed to be over him, but he also realizes that he will in no way violate his conscience in breaking God's laws in order to conform to theirs. December 30th, just a few days ago, the Chinese government announced to the world Pastor Yang, uh, Wang Yi would be sentenced to nine years in prison for what he said. So we be praying for this pastor and for his family. Be praying for the churches in China. You might think to yourself, what weakness? Why don't they rise up and topple the government? And that's been tried in other places. But you know where the gospel is spreading more quickly than in any other place in the world right now? Communist China. In a place where there are Men like Wang Yi, who care so much about the scripture, they're willing to say, I will obey it, even for nine years in a prison cell, if that's what it takes, so that my people can see that following Christ 
is what matters. May we have that kind of a heart to stand firm in the truths of God, to be grateful for what he has afforded to us, and to not let our concerns over political entities that are temporary and that God is sovereign over, don't let that to distract us from the true mission of the church, which is to proclaim a kingdom that is so much better than the one we're in right now. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, I thank you for the scripture that you've given us today and for challenging us to think differently than perhaps our culture has trained us to think. Father, this is radical. This kind of obedience to you that is at the same time peaceable, that is at the same time willing to sacrifice and suffer. God, we know there are times when when evil must be put down. But Lord, when it comes to governments, we have to be very careful because we understand that you are the one who determines who does and does not save. I'm sorry, who does and does not serve as a leader over your people. I praise you, God, that there's only one who saves, that Jesus Christ is the one that we look to for our hope and, and, our, and our, our joy and our confidence. So I pray that that confidence would rest on us no matter how badly our government treats us, no matter how far we get away from the gospel, Lord, let your church remain steadfastly bound to the truth of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.